And Jesus said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. In March of 1964, the original British boy band, The Beatles, produced a brand new song, one that in the very first week that it was broadcast, simultaneously topped the charts in the U.S., the U.K., and Australia. Written by Paul McCartney, the song was entitled, Can't Buy Me Love, and it has this memorable stanza. Say you don't want no diamond rings, and I'll be satisfied. Tell me that you want the kind of things that money just can't buy. I don't care too much for money, because money can't buy me love. Can't buy me love. That song definitely got it right, didn't it? For as we all know, money is a very powerful tool, and it can indeed buy you a great many things. Money, for instance, can buy you a host of material possessions, houses, cars, boats. Money can buy you moments of great distraction and escape, trips and vacations to exotic and far-flung places. Money can buy you friends, fans, and followers on Facebook. And yes, sometimes money can even buy you position and prestige. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, I think we would have to admit that for all its power and all its allure, there are, unfortunately, some things that money simply cannot buy. The Beatles were right. Money can't buy you love, true love, and genuine affection. And as today's gospel lesson from Mark chapter 10 makes very clear, nor can money buy you peace of mind, a relationship with God, or entrance into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the Bible is very clear. These things actually stand as major obstacles to a meaningful relationship with the Lord. And that was the very lesson that the young man here in Mark chapter 10 was going to have to learn the hard way when he came to Jesus. Now, it's important to remember whenever we study the Scriptures that context is always key. And that is certainly the case here. Mark tells us that this memorable encounter between Jesus and the rich young ruler took place just as the Lord was finishing up a very important object lesson with his disciples. It seems that people have been bringing their children to Jesus in the hopes that he might bless them. But the disciples, Peter and the others, have been shooing the children away as a mere nuisance. Well, when Jesus heard about this, he was angry, he became indignant. We're told that he took one of the little children, placed him in the midst of the disciples, and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. For truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that when it came to the kingdom of God, it is a matter of utter dependence. And that is exactly what that little child in their midst was supposed to teach them. Little children, toddlers especially, if you think about it, are utterly dependent creatures, aren't they? There's absolutely nothing that they can do for themselves. They can't wash themselves. They can't clothe themselves. They can't feed themselves. They can't even wipe their own nose. Everything must be done 
for them. Incidentally, this is one of the reasons why parents of young children always look so exhausted and careworn. It's because they are. It's because they never get a break. It's because they must do everything for their children. Well, Jesus' point to the disciples is that what is true of little children naturally is also true of us spiritually. When it comes to the kingdom of God, when it comes to eternal life, you and I are utterly dependent on God. There is absolutely nothing that we can do for ourselves. There is nothing that we can offer. There is nothing that we can bring to the table. How did the old hymn put it? Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. If we are to enter the kingdom, we must do so as utterly dependent children. Well, again, it was as Jesus was finishing up this very important object lesson with his disciples that Mark says all of a sudden this young man appears on the scene bowing down in the dust before Jesus and asking a very sincere question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's obvious from the nature of the question that he had not been paying close attention to what Jesus had just been saying. Especially that part about utter dependence. Otherwise, he would not have asked the question, what must I do? Jesus had just made it very clear there was nothing that he nor anyone else could do. Salvation was a matter of God's grace. And yet, this was a young man who was accustomed to doing things for himself. He was successful, he was self-sufficient, he was self-reliant, and he naturally assumed that this success, this self-reliance would just pour over into spiritual matters, that the kingdom of God was something that could be obtained either by merit or by effort. And Jesus was going to have to disabuse him of this fond but mistaken notion. Now, I'll be honest with you, I really like this man in Mark chapter 10. I do. In fact, I find him to be one of the more intriguing and attractive people in the New Testament. And one reason is because he is such a thoroughly modern man. And by that I mean he is someone like you and me. We recognize this fellow. Oh yes, he lived a long time ago in the first century. But if you think about it, he is a man who possesses many of the qualities, many of the attributes that our 21st century society admires and desires. For instance, all three of the synoptics tell us that he was a rich man. Well, you ask yourself, is there anything that our culture admires more than the acquisition of material wealth and possessions? We are absolutely enthralled by the likes of Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. We look at them and we say, these are successful men and we want to be like that. So he's rich. Matthew's version of the story goes on to tell us he was also young. Well, ours is certainly a society that admires youth, doesn't it? We practically worship at the altar of perpetual youth. We're always trying to beat back the clock, win the battle against aging, remain forever young. Ours is a society that caters to young people. So he's rich, he's young. Luke, in his version of the story, tells us that he was also influential. 
He was powerful. Luke actually describes him as a ruler of the people. And if all of these sterling qualities were not enough, on top of it all, Mark, in today's gospel lesson, tells us that he was also sincere. He was in earnest. Just take a look at the posture that he assumed when he came into the presence of the Lord. Even though he was wealthy and influential, we're told he bowed down in the dust before the Lord. That tells us that this is a young man who's not indifferent to spiritual matters. He has a lot going for him, but he recognized the value of his soul. So he is rich, young, influential, sincere. Folks, that's the whole package, isn't it? This is an impressive young man. My goodness, any mother or father would be absolutely beside themselves with joy if their daughter would bring home this kind of a suitor. And that's why I say, I really do like this man. It's because he has many sterling qualities. Even Jesus liked him. Verse 21 says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And why not? He was a lovable character. So you may be wondering, well then, what was the problem with this young man? What was the issue here? Well, I'll tell you. The issue was that this young man assumed that all of his riches and all of his wealth made him acceptable in the eyes of God. All of these things distorted his view of God, they distorted his view of life, they distorted his view of God's law, and they distorted his view of himself. And that's why Jesus answers his question the way that he does. The young man came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus in verse 19 replies, You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. In essence, Jesus says, look, there are only two ways for a person to enter the kingdom of God. There are only two ways for a person to be saved. One way is to come into the presence of the Lord admitting that you are spiritually and morally bankrupt. You come as a wholly dependent child, trusting in His grace. And the other way, Jesus said, is to do it yourself, which involves the keeping of the law, which must be done perfectly. Now remember, this was a very successful young man. This was an accomplished young man. All of his riches, all of his wealth had taught him to be independent, not dependent. And there was just something about this notion of having to rely on someone else for something that just rubbed him the wrong way. And that's why I suspect his heart must have soared when Jesus suddenly began to rattle off the second table of the law, all of those commandments. Because as he listened to Jesus' words and he examined his own life, it appeared as though he had kept all of them. It appeared as though he had kept all of the commandments, and what's more, he had kept them perfectly. And no sooner had Jesus finished than the young man blurts out, Good teacher, all these I have kept since I was a youth. All these I have kept since the time of my bar mitzvah. 
Now, that may seem to us to be an outlandish claim. But from his point of view, there was nothing outlandish about it at all. Let's not forget the Apostle Paul had made a very similar boast on one occasion. In Philippians 3, describing his own life in Judaism, prior to his conversion, Paul said, before the law, I was blameless. And that's what this man thought. He thought he was blameless. He thought, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery. I've never stolen. I've never borne false witness. I've never defrauded anybody. I've honored my father and my mother. From an outward perspective, he had kept the law, and what's more, he had kept it perfectly. Uh, But that, you see, was just the problem, wasn't it? He had kept the law outwardly. The question was, had he kept it inwardly? As I said, this man's riches, his accomplishments, had distorted his view of God's law. He assumed, as do many people today, I might add, that the commandments, the law was given in order to keep him from sin. That the law was given in order to help him avoid error, like a divine checklist. Do this, do this, don't do that. But the Apostle Paul tells us that is not what the law was intended to do. That is not the real function of the law. The law was not given to keep us from sinning. The law was given to reveal our sin. Think about the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Moses went up on the top of the mountains to receive the Ten Commandments. He's coming down with the tablets in hand. And what does he see the people doing at the bottom of the mountain? Worshipping the golden calf. And what's the very first commandment inscribed on the tablets? You shall have no other gods but me. Which means that the giving of the law on that occasion did not keep the people from sinning. It simply revealed the fact that they already had. And Paul says that is what the law always does. The law is like a mirror. A mirror can show you that your face is dirty, but it cannot clean you. The only thing a mirror can do is drive you to the soap and water. Well, Paul says that's what the law does to us. We read the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not murder. And we're convicted in our hearts because we know even if we haven't done those things outwardly, we have certainly done them inwardly. And then the law, what does it do? It drives us to the only place of cleansing, to Jesus himself. What was the problem with this young man? The problem with this young man was that he felt he was already clean. He thought that he was already pure. He didn't feel that he needed a Savior because he could save himself. And that meant that Jesus was going to have to do something very drastic. Jesus was going to have to hold up the mirror of the law to this man's life so that he could begin to see himself as he really was, not as he imagined himself to be. And that's what the Lord proceeded to do. He said, you've kept all of these commandments, have you? Well, that's amazing. Good for you. There's only one thing, I suppose, that's enough for you. One thing more that you need to do. Go, sell everything that you have, give the money to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. 
And the minute those words came out of the Lord's mouth, the penny dropped. All of a sudden, this man began to see himself as he really was, not as he imagined himself to be. It's really interesting to note the way that the Lord did this. Jesus never disputed this man's claim to perfection. Jesus never disputed the fact that he had kept all of the law perfectly. Jesus simply gave him a test. If he had really been keeping the law perfectly, then obviously he'd been keeping that first and greatest commandment, you shall have no other gods. But that was just a question. Was God first in this man's life, or was there something else that had forced God off the throne? John Wesley, the great 18th century evangelist, was once given a tour of a stately home in England, Chatsworth House. It took him all day to go through the house and over the estate, and at the end of the day, the master came to him and said, well, Mr. Wesley, what do you think? Wesley paused for a moment, trying to be as diplomatic as possible, and then he replied, what do I think? I think you are going to have a hard time leaving all of this. Well, the young man in today's gospel had a hard time leaving all of this, didn't he? Jesus said, there's only one thing you need to do in order to enter eternal life. And all of a sudden, this man realized that his money, his possessions, these things were precious to him. They were more precious, in fact, than his very souls. That was the one thing he could not do. Here was a man who thought he'd kept all of the commandments, and Jesus had just shown him that he had, in fact, broken the very first commandment, and as a consequence, all of the rest. And his countenance fell. And he turned and he walked away filled with sorrow for he had great wealth. And Jesus turned to the disciples and said, Oh, little children, how difficult it is for people to enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you the truth, it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Folks, this text should come as a solemn warning to you and to me. Because as Americans, we are among the wealthiest, the most accomplished people in the history of the world. We pride ourselves on our self-reliance and our self-sufficiency. But Jesus is very clear, these are the very things that threaten our souls. Our wealth, our accomplishments are actually spiritual liabilities. Now, why is that? Why are money and wealth so dangerous to our souls? Let me suggest to you just a few things. First of all, money is a serious threat to your soul because money gives you a false sense of independence. In the year 60 AD, the wealthy city of Laodicea in ancient, ancient minor, Asian Minor was destroyed by a massive earthquake. The whole city was toppled to the ground. But because it was such an important city, strategically located, the Roman Empire offered to rebuild it. But the proud citizens of Laodicea said, no thanks. We can handle the problem 
on our own. Well, that's what rich people often say, isn't it? They think that they are self-sufficient. They think they can handle the situation entirely on their own. They don't want anyone's help and want to pull themselves up by their own resources. And the result is that they are loath to humble themselves before the Lord. To seek His help. But they forget that none of us is truly independent. That we are all reliant on God. We are creatures. He is the Creator. And every breath we take is borrowed from Him. Wealth not only gives you a false sense of independence, wealth does something else that is a spiritual liability. It makes people greedy. It makes them stingy. Now, you might think it would be just the opposite, but when people taste of wealth and prosperity, they quickly develop a fear of losing these things. John D. Rockefeller was the founder of the famous Rockefeller Fortune, and at the zenith of his wealth, he was worth, one man, 1% of the entire U.S. economy. One man worth 1% of the entire nation's economy. He was by far the richest man on earth. And when someone asked him how much money would be enough, Rockefeller famously replied, just a little bit more. And finally, money is a spiritual liability because it shackles us to this earth. Jesus once said, store not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Well, if your treasure is here on earth, your heart's going to be here on earth. And if your heart is here on earth, it cannot be at the same time in heaven. And so Jesus said, yes, wealth, possessions, these things are serious spiritual liabilities. But you know, it's very easy at this point to get off track and to assume that Jesus' only concern was with this man's wealth. And that's not actually the case. Wealth and poverty, truth be known, are just economic states. Being wealthy does not make you a sin any more than being poor makes you virtuous. Quite the opposite. Some of the greatest heroes of the Bible were wealthy, propertied people. People like Abraham and David and Solomon in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. People like Barnabas and Lydia and Joseph of Arimathea. No, the problem for this man was not that he had riches. The problem for this man was that his riches had him. A fact made abundantly clear by the fact that when Jesus said, there's only one thing you need to do, let it go, he could not do it. Which means that Jesus' primary concern was not with his wealth, but with his idolatry. And my friends, this is really where the story begins to intersect with your life and mine. Because we are all guilty in one way or another of the very thing that this man was guilty of. One commentator put it this way. He said, like the monkey who's caught in the trap because he cannot let go of the coconut, 
There is something in all of our lives that we do not want to let go of. It's so precious to us that we would forfeit our very souls. Now, for some of us, that may be money. It may be possessions. But money's not the only thing that can ruin you. It's not the only thing that can keep you out of heaven. For others, it may be an unhealthy or unholy romance or relationship. For others, it may be an unwillingness to let go of control so that God can be in charge. For others, it may be your pride of intellect. But whatever it is, there is something in your life. Ask yourself, what is that something? Bishop J.C. Ryle once said, there are many people in the world who are willing to give up everything for Christ. Everything but one darling little sin. And for the sake of that one darling little sin, they will be lost forever. What is it in your life? What is the idol in your life? What is it that is more precious to you than God Himself? What is the one thing that you cannot let go of? Because whatever that thing is, it has taken God's rightful place and Jesus is very clear, it will keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. Now you reach this point in the story and you're at the point of despair. You think to yourself, well then, who can be saved? And you'll notice that is precisely the question that the disciples asked. Peter was the one who blurted it out. He said, Lord, if this is true, if my heart is nothing but an idle factory, and this rich young man who's so accomplished, so impressive, cannot be saved, then Lord, what hope is there for me? Jesus gives us the answer. He said, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Which brings us right back to where we started. Which brings us right back to that little child placed in the midst of the disciples. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus is very clear, there is nothing that you can do. The only thing you can do is to acknowledge the fact that you are spiritually and morally bankrupt that all of your accomplishments, all of your achievements, all of the history, all of the money, all of the possessions in the grand economy of heaven are nothing worth. The only way to inherit eternal life is to come like a wholly dependent child, trusting in the God whose property is always to have mercy. Will you do that? Will you come wholly dependent on Christ? Not trusting in your own abilities, your own achievements, your own wealth. Will you set all of that aside and come to Him like a humble child today? I want you to notice that nowhere in the Bible does it ever refer to adults in heaven. 
If we get to heaven at all, it's because we are children of God. So Jesus said, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. May God grant us the grace to stop being self-sufficient adults and to come humbly like dependent children. For Jesus' sake. Amen.